Good again. Hi, and welcome to Talkward. I'm Marty Dundix, editor-in-chief of Weekly Humorous Magazine, and this is Talkward, a fun little podcast where professionally funny people come to tell awkward and cringeworthy stories. I'm very excited about today's show. We have a writing team on. Uh, they are writers for Weekly Humorist, also uh, McSweeney's, also Points in Case, many, many places, Crack the Spine. You can, the list goes on and on. Michael Bleichler and Andy Newton, welcome to Talkward. Hey, it's good to be here. Hey. Michael's calling in from Washington, D.C. And boy, are my arms tired. Ah, it's hilarious. <laughs> the book that uh, you have out is called From the Campaign Trail or Thereabouts, and it is the first book from Humorist Books, the imprint of Weekly Humorist, and I'm so happy to publish your book. Thank it's you. It's been a fun experience. Thank you. We're going to talk all about the experience of publishing a book and what we've learned and what we're hoping will happen and the major impact your book is having already on the scene, and um, what the process was to write a book, going from uh, writing short uh, online humor pieces to a much, much larger project, writing a novel, which um, just seems like such a daunting task. And uh, so from the campaign trailer thereabouts, it is out now. People should go buy it. You guys uh, met early on uh, in college, you guys went to Brown together. Yes. So, uh, welcome to the show. Okay. Let's let's start chatting about it all. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we yeah we've been writing together um, for about I guess uh, about ten years almost. Is that right, Michael? Yeah. Uh, nine nine years I think. Yeah, nine and change. All twenty ten. What year is it now? Twenty nineteen. Yeah, yeah, we we met through nine years. Yeah, yeah, we met through mutual friends um, at senior year of Brown, and. Uh, Immediately sort of hit it off, realizing that we had a lot of, um, you know, similar tastes and uh, similar senses of humor, similar tastes in, you know, television shows and movies. And, you know, we sort of spoke a similar language of, uh, you know, Seinfeld and Arrested Development references. Um, and uh, Michael was working on this, uh, happened to be working on this show for the Brown television station. Um, you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So I had... Um sort of co-created this live weekly daily show type program for the Brown campus TV station um, that was horrible. And, and everybody else <laughs> who was working on it had no sense of humor. Uh, it was sort of all people who just wanted to do something related to TV and didn't have any idea really how to entertain people or, or, or what it would be like to be funny. Yeah. My sense and, of it, my, uh, my sense of it was that, uh, it was like it was a bunch of people trying to build a reel for job applications, and then the mm -hmm. two of us. <laughs> right, that was exactly it. And I kind of thought, well, I didn't want to stop doing it. I just wanted it to be, you know, vaguely enjoyable. Um, and so, as I sort of divined that, that Andy and I both had a similar sense of humor, and we both kind of thought, like, in similar terms. For example, an early conversation we had was, well, if you're if you're a fetishist, like if you're into poop sex how do you bring that up if you're on like a first date do you just say like you know so after this we could you know go back to my place and watch lost in translation or i could poop on your chest i've already seen lost in translation so you know <laughs> really balls uh, in your court there. just throwing some stuff right. out there you <laughs> yeah. know n n no yeah, particular yeah, order for these things watching it again but i i'm kind of a new experiences guy um anyway so you know we both thought that was an, an interesting line of thought to, to pursue on a, on a television show. Um, and so I, I asked, well, do you want to write this together? And we wrote a bunch of uh, jokes about 
Yeah, so they were, that were in the news at the time. And, yeah, you know, it was basically like, like the first, yeah. it's basically like the monologue section of the episode, like the first five yeah. or ten minutes where they're just kind of running through the headlines of the week, um, trying to center it mostly on campus-related news. And we brought that to, or I brought that as the like executive producer of this little thing to the the anchors who were going to be doing it and they looked at it and they refused to do any of the jokes because they were offended by them. I said, well, Andy wrote all of those. I didn't even see them until just now. I'm offended too, but we don't have another script. So maybe we want to use these jokes. Um, but, but what happened was that after a couple of episodes, we sort of realized that it wasn't going to work because of the, the nature of how we were doing this whole thing on a shoestring to come up with, really, really timely jokes that could then be delivered the way we wanted them to be delivered. So instead, we would make the show about people trying and failing to put on a half-decent show. Yeah, and we, we started to write more for character. Yeah, we we added a level of, like, meta-textuality to it. So the show is about a show. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but we, yeah. but no no one else involved with the with the show got the memo. But. Ah, right. <laughs> so, so you know, the character, the actors didn't realize that they were the ridiculous characters in the no, show. We were, we basically, yeah. Like af- after maybe I would say two or two or three episodes, we sort of got the sense of, Oh, we can make the anchors. We could create caricatures of these anchors yeah. and like, maybe they won't notice <laughs> and just and, sort of lean into the awkward delivery. Now, yeah. 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 Unless they're listening to it now. <laughs> I, Penny may still not have, dropped i mean i don't um know how often they go back and try to find them on youtube They're a light bulb there. finally went off in their head yeah. that's what Wait i was doing second. yeah <laughs> no wonder uh, they added so many stutters and ums in the script <laughs> well there was one this has nothing to do with your question marty but there was one time when andy actually he had class usually when the show was on but one night he showed up to the taping and uh, the one of the anchors was referring to the two people who wrote the scripts and she mentioned my name and then she said, and the other writer. And after her segment was done, we sort of said, Oh yeah, you know, you don't, you don't know Andy's name. And she said, Oh no, 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 I do. I just didn't know how he pronounced it. It's like, uh, um, uh, which I thought yeah. was, yeah. Andy? Yeah. Andy? Andy? Yeah. Uh, Andy? Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know where I was going with this, but um, the point but, being, we sort of developed this way of writing in character. And then the other thing we sort of figured out, was that we both thought it was really funny to create these kind of magical realism versions of, of real people and real events. For, for example, you'd have, you know, the campus, the university provost, for example, or the university president, and you'd start by using a real quote that they had said that was a little off or a little funny or had something you wanted to, to poke at, and then just go from there into a completely imagined version of them that might sort of dovetail with a satirical point you want to make or might just go off in more of a farcical direction where it's the juxtaposition of something that is expected with something completely unexpected and it's that that goofiness that we yeah and we, we delighted in. and we loved blurring the lines between their the, the you know official statements from you know uh the provost say and uh blurring the lines from you know the the official statement he had in the, you know, Brown Daily Herald, uh, the school newspaper, and then sort of expanding on it into this whole sort of, you know, veering off into this weird fictional direction. With so him. it seems like a lot of the writing that you guys have done together um, since your beginnings have always been character-driven humor pieces, uh, more developed than maybe a flat, typical, short-form humor piece that you would read on yeah. online, where it, it's a lot of lists. 
You know what I mean? It's yeah. a lot yeah. of like light premises. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of like you know, yeah, I mean, predictable, we, funny, yeah. but like light stuff that maybe oh, sure. you know. And your stuff is always a lot more rich with dialogue mm-hmm. and characters that have uh, like a, a a deeper, dumber silliness. You know, mm-hmm. and it's it's almost very it's very uh, like light handed. Sometimes, mm. like, it's not like, like, your stuff is very subtle, I feel like, a lot of yeah. times when you read it. Like, people can read it and they say, oh, that's funny, but then they have to read it again and they're like, oh, I'm actually seeing yeah. some stuff that shows up in a lot of your writing. Like, you have themes that you you sprinkle in themes that you like over and over again in your articles that I know because I publish them and I see them other places where you always, you have themes that you repeat that you're just like, I think it's fun to find little Easter eggs that you guys find that are funny to you, that tickle you. That you plant in things that aren't necessarily needed, yeah. <laughs> but you just always yeah. kind of have them. Yeah. And then in yeah. this book, in from the campaign trail or thereabouts on sale now, you have taken almost your entire career of writing, and you've taken your favorite little Easter eggs and you've planted them in the chapters, kind of. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. so the characters for the book, uh, Harold and Patty, are. And Michael is running from the law, I feel like, right now. <laughs> Hide behind that dumpster. Yeah. <laughs> They're on to you. Uh, Mike Pence read the, the chapter from the <laughs> RNC chapter. He's, the uh, he's going to have me arrested because our libel laws are completely ridiculous and very unfair. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of real characters in this book that are satirized that I'm like, oh, am I going to get in trouble for that? Right. <laughs> Maybe. Well, it's, you know, and, and that's no, a... as a matter of fact, you are not. It is protected parody under... Yes. Your, uh, Fowell versus Hustler, 1988, I believe. Yep, 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 very good. Yeah, it's but, good to have a lawyer yeah. uh, writing the book, actually. Too. Yeah, I'm very grateful for that. <laughs> <laughs> this is by the way, if anybody, yeah, I am a lawyer, and if anybody's fallen off a motorcycle or you know been hit by a truck or slipped, <laughs> uh, uh, you can contact Marty and get my information. Yep, Michael Blaker, Esquire. I took Spanish yeah. for one year of college, uh, <laughs> as well as four years of high school, and I, I got a five on the AP test. So you know, that's great. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, yeah. back to your original point about um, writing from character. That is something that we, yeah, like, like you said, we really stumbled on almost immediately. That something that I think we were both naturally inclined to do, and then we we really built on it from that from that show. Um, Twenty five thirty six was the name of it, um, and then um, you know through our own uh, uh, projects after we graduated, we had a, a blog. We had a small blog that was just the two of us at first called. Um, Uncle Ron's Mobile Tampon Emporium. Uh, the, the name didn't it didn't really catch on. Uh, as, oh, really? <laughs> but uh, we, you know, we continued with the same sort of um, should not buy tampons from Uncle Ron, people. <laughs> no matter what discounts he promises, we. Um, but we, yeah, we continued on a lot of those same themes. You know, we we had um, we had an uh, one of the articles that really stood out to me was we had a whole string of articles that were making fun of uh, Barack Obama's um, campaign emails. You oh, know? yeah. And, but, and, but we, uh, we wrote, because the, they tried to make them as if they were, uh, they tried they to write them as if they were Barack. very personal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, he's, um, like he's, my, yeah. he's my buddy. Yeah, and so that we, were, yeah. we had a string of articles where he was trying to invite the reader out to, to like, a dinner party. You know, he's like, oh, I'm making my famous seafood risotto, yeah. you know, <laughs> but writing it in that kind of traditional um you know, Obama cadence, yeah. you know, recognizable Obama cadence. And- well, and then over time, they started to get even more detached because it became clear that the the addressee of the emails was actually a potential. He wanted 
Barack Obama wanted to woo this person, but in the way that like a man in 1910 would try to woo somebody. <laughs> and so it would be this very sort of courtly, pleading, proper, but, but desperate yearning mm. in the emails, which was, which kind of matched the tenor of the fundraising emails. Yeah. Um, and it got, you know, it got really weird. And it was the <laughs> kind of thing that, that we wrote were like, we thought this was funny and we didn't really care if anybody else thought it was. Whereas I think if we had tried to go the route of like doing the listicles and stuff that actually got clicks, we might've hit more success earlier on, but we wouldn't have found a kind of team voice or team style that carried us through to the point where we would think writing a novel is, is something that we would be able to sustain. Yeah. I think, um, yeah, we didn't really start trying to get published in places outside of our own websites and blogs until you know, um, a few years after college. I would say maybe, you know, just like in, within the last five years. Uh, I think I think there's actually a connection between that and us both finally entering sort of serious adult relationships where we kind of realized <laughs> like <laughs> other people seeing and appreciating you and, and doing certain things, you know, to the for the world instead of just on your own in your room is kind of a great, you know, that's a rewarding feeling. Yeah. Um, this is a, a hot take I just came up with, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, we were sort of, you know, content to sort of amuse ourselves, uh, for a long time. Yeah. Um, you know, and after uncle Ron's, we, we started another, we started a website with a few other, um, friends of ours from Brown and my, and my brother, um, called the Brabble. And that was more of a, um, the vision for that, it was more of a, you know, an, an, an e-magazine, you know, mm-hmm. or, or just, uh, I guess that, that was the terminology back then. I think now they would just call it a, you know, a culture website or yeah. something. But, Your you know, website we, that, yeah. and that's, and that's where we really started, right. Michael and I really started getting into writing these, you know, monologues from different characters. And, and that's where we created uh, what became the basis for um, Harold, the main character of our book. We had this uh, at the time. He didn't have a name. He was just called uh, the foreign correspondent. Foreign correspondent. Yeah, I had had this. I had woken up from a dream about <laughs> a year into doing this website, and I just thought we should do a piece where there's a New York Times reporter who's supposed to be in Turkey covering the riots in Turkey, whatever exactly was going on there, but. He's a coward, and he really likes nice things, so he's actually in Greece at a hotel, like, on the beach in Crete, and his editor is calling him from Manhattan, and he's trying to lie and pretend that he's in Turkey, but he's not, and at the same time, see if he can get his editors okay to be in Greece so that he can be doing all this on the up and up, which is a really complicated premise for, like, an 800-word humor piece written in the first person to an audience of, like, 20 people, and sometimes my dad but um <laughs> we did that and we had so much fun with the voice that then we did a you know a second and a third and it became this recurring character from time to time and i loved writing for him because he was really really classist he was a liar a fraud extremely duplicitous and he just had no shame and that's a delightful character if you're a, a humorist to write for because literally any bad impulse you have, you can channel into this person <laughs> and see where it goes. Um, and literally everybody I know who's read the book tells me that they pretty much hate this character. And I'm always kind of shocked because I see him as being sort of yeah, partly repugnant, but also like wish fulfillment. Yeah, there's there's also, I think, a, a, um, 
a lot of uh, insecurity um, mm -hmm. in a character like that who's so mm -hmm. uh, who's sort of so obsessed with the trappings of a certain identity, you know, and obviously, um, you know, obviously kind of reaching, you know, <laughs> for it. Um, There's a lot and, of imposter syndrome in there. Yeah. Um, and I find that really compelling, this sort of, um, you know, this kind of like constant burning need inside of him and, you know, never and always sort of finding that his, you know, lofty expectations for how a certain life should be, um, you know, continually falling short. Um, Ab absolutely. And I think also we we fleshed out this character as we were starting to write the novel and we'll get to how we put him in the novel in a second. But at a time when we were both sort of leaving the academic world, academia, and actually tr trying to make our way at desk jobs and sort of hating it. And it became a vehicle, I think, for me, and I think also for Andy, to sort of channel our frustrations into how stupid that was yeah, and completely. at the same time how stultifying and deadening it was into this person who sort of also saw that and saw that it was this game, but decided he was just going to try to take shortcuts because hopefully unlike us, he sort of narcissistically believed it was his birthright to, to just <laughs> cut the, cut the line. Yeah. Yeah. He's a terrible employee. This, oh, yeah. uh, Harold yeah, is a, Harold is such a bad reporter, but hearing the way that you guys write, you do a lot of a style that is a lot of uh, similar to like a Bob Newhart where it's one sides of a one side of a conversation mm -hmm. and the comedy you know comes from not hearing what the person is saying but then the reaction to what your character is saying back to them where he tries to float the idea of oh well you know who's covering Greece right now because of so and so's termination it, uh, yeah it's it's probably just uh what uh, Russia and uh uh what did he say they're practically yeah. on the same beat. I assume yeah. Russia and Greece are practically on the same beat. Anyway, Greece is in the midst of a massive debt crisis, so he's like trying to <laughs> steer the conversation after his editor has told him he's going to be getting the U.S. campaign trail. Which is like probably the most coveted position he could get. You know, <laughs> he's still trying to peddle right. himself as like, well, my my question to you, sir, is who's covering Europe? It's like, and it's just yeah. and everything he's he's, he's ev looking for like that nexus between status and the actual amount of work he'd have to put into something. You know, <laughs> so right. <it's> <laughs> <laughs> so tell uh tell the listeners about uh the basic premise of the book um you know who is harold who is patty and and what are what are they up to and, and what are they trying to achieve yeah um so the so harold is uh is a, a, a reporter uh, harold and patty are a married couple in their um late 30s uh patty is a writer a tv critic for the new yorker and harold um writes for an uh, unnamed uh, manhattan newspaper and um, both both of them are fairly, uh, you know, ivory towerish, and they're, um, but also like kind of, you know, the sort of bleeding heart limousine liberal kind of mentality. Um, and Harold Harold uh, is assigned to cover uh, the twenty sixteen presidential election, and immediately kind of devises this scheme that he can, um, you know, save his or you know rescue his marriage, which has been sort of on the rocks by uh you know taking his wife with him on the campaign trail and expensing basically expensing a vacation to san diego thinking like well once i'm out there you know i'll have a, a ton of leeway and where i get to go and who i get to you know talk to so we you know we can just you know hop hop and skip over to you know san diego and who's going to notice an extra cob salad on the expense reports you know <laughs> it's right. pra practically the uh the motto of the journalism industry <laughs> exactly <laughs> um and so it's sort of it's a bit of a road novel uh in the sense that you know the uh the 
Harold and Patty are traveling around the country and, uh, you know, meeting politicians, going to political events, meeting uh, voters. And so it's uh, it, it really is uh, that sort of premise is, a, is also a vehicle for us to, um, you know, explore the sort of recognizable figures from 2016 and also these what we see as the kind of, um, you know, archetypes, archetypes. of yeah, yeah. of of, of, Amer- of like of the American political discourse, you know, and cultural um, mentality. And this is a dysfunctional couple. He's terrible. She is great. Right. So she is, <laughs> yeah. when you're reading the book, um, I'm envisioning actors, and it would be a younger um, Niles. It would be a younger... Yeah, younger we, David Hyde Pierce. Younger David Hyde Pierce. That was Pierce. sort of our, our point of reference. Kind of for... a Frasier-era David Hyde Pierce. Yeah. And then yeah, sort absolutely. of a early Seinfeld-era Julia Louis-Dreyfus? Yeah, that's fair yeah, to say. Somewhere yeah, somewhere between that and Tina Fey, maybe. Okay. Yeah, if you're gonna, or, or rather, a little bit of Liz Lemon in there, sort of the uh, the emotionally repressed uh, workaholic, right? Who has other emotional needs, but she sort of refuses to recognize them because that would take more work, yeah. than just sort of soldiering on with what she knows she can deal with. Um, yeah, exactly. The kind of like the the, although Harold is you know, um, you know, a bit of a, a piece of shit, he's a familiar piece of shit, right? You know? And so you know, yeah. you know what you're getting. And yeah. uh, and it would be you know probably too much work to go and try and do the requisite work on yourself to find, <laughs> in order to, to... <laughs> to have the, the strength or, or willpower to to leave him and and you know fight him through the divorce battle in which he wants more than half of everything <laughs> and, and and then start over and and I kind of think of Patty's attitude is thinking of all that and being like oh man that I'd have to like make a dating app profile and I'd have to like get a studio and. <laughs> probably have to talk to my parents and Ugh. so she just sort of that would have to move to chelsea hard. like can yeah. you imagine yeah. <laughs> yeah. which i think is a they very true wrong. feeling yeah. that people who oh, are yeah. in people who would rather just stay in a bad relationship just because the alternative sounds so much like so much more work oh yeah you know like and going through that is so difficult so maybe we'll just fix this thing that oh, yeah. maybe used to be good mm-hmm. and we'll kind of let it but the more you read the more you get mad at him and the more you're mad at her like She's way too good for him. Way yeah, and one him. of the th- things, one of, we are writing a sequel now, and one of the things we start to pull back the covers on a little bit more is something that we talked about in coming up with the backstory for these characters, but only hinted at in fits and starts in this novel, because this one is pretty farcical for most of it, which is there's got to be something going on in Patty's psyche and in Patty's past that makes her do this. And, and so she is kind of codependent, and she for whatever reason, as far as you can see in this book, is okay with always trying to bail Harold out or help him out or give him, you know, a little bit more assistance than he really deserves and hope that somehow this time he'll make good on it and he'll he'll be better and be the kind of person that she wants him to be. And he always lets her down each time. Yeah, um, always. And like the to rental a, car companies. <laughs> well, yeah. they really undersold the insurance. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so funny. And there's so many things in the book that are... It, when you're reading the book, the book is so much like watching a comedy road trip movie. So, you know, a lot of books are written in a way where there's so much that would have to be done with an adaptation from a book to a movie mm that it would become incredibly difficult to, well, they couldn't really make that, so they're going to have to rewrite that, or they're going to have to do that a different way. But the way you guys write, it's almost like reading a fully fully developed script. 
and which is great because yeah. I love you know I'm reading scripts is just fast and watching movies is great and this is this this reads like a great movie mm-hmm. so I mean when this gets made into a streaming project uh, well, it is going to be so much fun to watch because the adventures and the misadventures are so hilarious and there's in and, and the comedy is so quick witted like it's so punchy mm-hmm. where it's almost like um the dialogue is just like joke 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 yeah you know it's so fast and and the calamity he gets into but then gets out of mm-hmm. just as quick is very funny yeah and a lot a lot of that is you know obviously by design i think um you know some of it is because that's the style that we developed over these years of writing these short pieces together is you know we love to rather than just um you know like like a lot of fiction does sort of pull back the curtain and and show the you know interior lives of the characters uh you know point and hint at that interiority through their actions and dialogue and the, and subtext um we also th- realized that uh you know the for for us to write the humor novel the you know the comic fiction that we wanted to write it had to have that sort of breezy quality to it and so um you know overburdening the book with um description or interiority would have slowed it down and i think detracted yeah, it moves from, fast yeah. like it moves yeah. fast like i was this i was looking for a couple of lines of dialogue um that kind of are the beginnings of the character just like the whole the whole story kind of starts right at the right out of the gate and it kind of and it's literally on page two is when the jokey dialogue and the whole story starts like that's how fast you're in like the beginning of the book is at this dinner party literally in the first two pages you have harold complaining about the cheapness of the dinner at the dinner party (laughs) would it kill them to get lobsters what is this newman's own salad dressing we can afford newman's own like he was so mad at the, at the fancy dinner party not being fancy enough yeah, and this is his friend throwing him a dinner. <laughs> yeah and it's just like immediately like you, you you got into it so quickly which is so much fun with this book it's like you got into the meat and potatoes of the characters immediately and that's probably because you have been working on short form humor pieces where you're character and dialogue driven which is different than most humor uh short form pieces so like you get into the stuff so quickly because you're not used to having the time Mm -hmm. you know like i don't think you guys write where you have like the luxury of pages upon pages of just like blah 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 you guys get into it so fast which is which is a great training ground to write a really good novel because you don't get bored reading this book you just like you start reading you're like stuff's happening immediately Mm -hmm. totally it's not like when's something gonna happen I think of it more as most novels are sort of written more as though they are movies. And so you have time to set the scene and develop the characters and do exposition. And I think we sort of come both in terms of where our our shared sensibilities as a team ground us and just stuff that we like more from kind of a sitcom perspective. So we looked at chapters, I would say more as being, individual episodes within an arc rather than scenes of a movie so yeah and that i think served us well and that the the end product if you're going to have 300 pages that are that are humorous and and there's not going to be a lot of interiority or you're not going to deal with heavy themes in a heavy way you need to keep things moving along otherwise it's going to start to tire on people before you've gotten to the end of it and so having these structured episodic fragments make up the whole uh i think was sort of the the natural place that we gravitated to and that came from wanting to write sitcoms rather than wanting to write movies 
<laughs> yeah, and yeah. it does because like even the way that the uh, that the, the individual chapters are structured within the chapter there'll be like four different scenes oh yeah where they're separated yeah and, and it's just yeah. like and there's no there's no uh there's no need for expository more information you just start reading and you know exactly where they are and wh- where what time it is you know mm-hmm. and what it, what date it is you're just like yeah. boom boom oh they're here now mm-hmm. i didn't it's, need it's someone kind, to tell me yeah it's kind of a hemingway-esque approach to writing satire rather than like a henry james approach and i think that just sort of naturally fit the characters in the scenes there was never really even any discussion about should we should we have the narrator be able to peel back the curtain on what harold's thinking or what patty's feeling we just tried to um to give just enough dialogue and we would actually edit and pour over certain lines of dialogue a lot to make sure there were enough clues there uh but just tried to give enough with each thing that each character says or the couple of words we use to describe how the character is behaving when they're saying or doing things to let a reader who's paying attention get the message of, you know, oh, okay, Harold's doing this because he's insecure or Patty's doing this because she really, she wants something from Harold he can't give. Yeah, and I think I remember noticing as I was reading that I liked that it, things weren't overly explained to me. Mm-hmm. Like you did have to pay attention. That was something we really and I liked it. Do, I liked know. that it, I wasn't being reintroduced to the characters every chapter, which mm-hmm. I feel like definitely happens in television shows where yeah. every yeah. episode of a show that you've already watched the previous episode they rehash the entire storyline. Totally. Every it's like every episode now is a pilot. Yeah, because they think the yeah. viewers are that stupid, right? You know, think, like yeah, yeah. And, and that's and that's where I think our our um, the inspiration we derived from television shows, you know, um, diverges, you know, and and start. That's more of our literary influences. That's something we t- we thought about too. Is is this too, uh, you know, telly, not enough, you know, showy, that kind of thing. Yeah, <laughs> you know, um, I, I like to think about. Uh, this is something that I think I've I've mentioned to both of you, um, you know, off mic uh, that. Um, you know, the, the Italian author Italo Calvino uh, wrote this really great essay on um, the nature of postmodernism as an artistic movement and how um, you know, one of the aspects of it is that the artist is, uh, isn't limited to just, uh, you know, the, um, the sort of inflexibility of genre um, and medium and media that uh, that artists were before postmodernism, something that I think artists now kind of take for granted. Um, but, uh, you know, he points out that, you know, he's as inspired by, um, you know, uh, Manzoni or, or Dante Boccaccio as he, uh, as he is by, you know, the Mickey Mouse comics that he read as a kid. And I think it's very, um, very much the same for us. I think we're both, you know, as inspired by, you know, Seinfeld and the Bob Newhart show as we are by Mark Twain and Kurt Vonnegut. You guys are so smart. I love talking to people who are, well, I mean, I love talking to people who are so much smarter than me, but at the same time, it, it also puts on display just how dumb I am. But it's fun to be exposed to it because both of you are very educated and very well-read individuals who have now quoted Italian literature and uh, uh, Hemingway and, and was it James Joyce? Henry James. Henry, Henry James. James. Oh, sorry. Like, is it even a difference to me? Maybe not, guys. I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to nod and smile and act like I know what's going on, but it, that's why it's so much fun working with people like you, <laughs> because I just admire the ability for people to write and be so so good at it and so smart and have all of that knowledge. Um, so the, the book 
Well, the one thing that I, I wanted to talk, I mean, quickly, we could just talk about one, one of my favorite scenes. And one of my favorite scenes is is when um, they take the Uber and they get themselves into some trouble. Harold and Patty, I think, are in Boston at this time. Yeah. Yeah. And they get into an Uber and they get into a situation with the, uh, with the Uber driver. It's a cab or an Uber driver? It's a Uber? cab. It's a cab. So he's in a cab in Boston and he has a very chatty cabbie. So tell us about that scene and then tell us where that scene came from. Michael, you want to take this? Yeah, I'll take this. Um, so first I'll briefly summarize the scene. He's there in the back of this cab and the driver starts talking and it becomes clear that he's uh, sort of a racist, misogynistic, low life who's got some friends who are probably kind of third tier criminals running drugs and, and sort of on a, a petty local level. And Harold being, in addition to very... Uh, self-important and class conscious is also a complete coward and so whenever he does encounter sort of tough blue-collar people he completely withers and uh this guy through a series of communications seems to think that harold and patty are in boston to party and he offers to uh hook them up with some oxys uh, some painkillers and uh harold this is while harold's paying for the cab at the end of the ride and Harold is too terrified to say no, and you're sort of you sort of intuit that he also thinks this is a demand and not an offer, which may not be off base. So he agrees to buy five hundred dollars worth of uh, prescription painkillers from this cab driver, which you know he's then saddled with. He refuses to throw them out at the hotel because they're staying at the Fairmont, and he just doesn't think that would be the right place to, yeah, uh, it's a far, to throw them away. Hotel's far too nice to. to yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, he can't do that. He's afraid of what the hotel would think of him. I think if uh, if they found it in his trash, uh, so they take him with them until they can get into New Hampshire, where they can throw them away in their natural habitat. <laughs> and uh, before they're able to do so, they're pulled over because Harold's rented his second sports car of the novel. We're in chapter four. And uh, it's February. He crashes on some black ice. The police come. They search the car because they think he's uh, been beating his wife, which he hasn't. He last thing he would ever do. Uh, but they find the oxys. Harold gets arrested and um, he ends up in jail in New Hampshire. But he's released in the morning because it turns out he bought off-brand Tylenol from the cabin. <laughs> <laughs> and the whole thing is so funny, and the whole thing happens, and there's tons of uh, jokes and hilarious dialogue because of it, and then at the end, resolution, he gets out, right? Mm-hmm. So it was, it was such a funny... Um, it was a funny part. It was a funny scene because all of it, all the... The hilariousness that happens, and then there's no consequences, and then the story just continues. Yeah. And I feel like that's the fun thing that happens in this book is there's tons of these fun things happen, and it just keeps going. Mm-hmm. You know, like you find hilarious ways into it and then out of it, yeah. which is and that's great. It's like a roller coaster of of, of kind of a, a comedic novel, which I think is, and you you keep the kind of momentum from the beginning to the end. Like I I. This is a daunting thing to write a novel that you guys have done, and it doesn't it doesn't like peak and then go down. Mm-hmm. It's like consistently funny, yeah, until the end, and then it's over, mm-hmm. and then you kind of it's and then you want more, mm-hmm. which is why when you guys said you're writing a sequel, obviously you can write a sequel because this book ends in such a way that you can have a sequel. Oh yeah, these characters can yeah. continue on, we, we, not to ruin anything. No one explodes. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. and nobody changes, and nobody learns. Yeah. <laughs> you can pick up exactly what Most importantly, no one yeah. learns the lesson. I think yeah. what I what I love about that um, one of the things I love about Harold, and I think that 
chapter in particular illustrates it is that he's a very um, impotent character. You know, he uh, things kind of just happen to him, and he he's and he just react, and all of his action in the book is is very much just. Uh, him being reactive. reactive. Yeah, he's yeah. very reactive. And so whenever he succeeds, it's always just falling ass backwards in success. And then he's all and then he also finds himself in all these situations where uh he feels like he's up against a wall but really it's just like he's just acting because it's, it's He has really, no agency or he yeah. refuses to exercise it. So and it's he this just sort of yeah. yeah, and it's this kind of situation where he feels compelled to do something but it's really uh you know, all all in his own head, or you know, or yeah. or because he's either afraid or or he thinks it would be impolite, you know. And I, I find that hilarious when people are sort of forced to do things because uh, of some kind of sense of propriety or etiquette. Or yeah, a lot yeah. of what uh, Harold does is because he wants people to think that he is better than he is, mm-hmm. and that whole yeah. like his personality, like he wants to be this upper crust, he wants to be this high society important you know writer mm-hmm. um you know from a good family and, and wouldn't be caught dead wearing that kind of you know clothing or mm-hmm. vacationing in that kind of spot or you know wearing white after labor day or any of those things <laughs> what would the neighbors think and it's yeah. like the amount that he goes through to uh, avoid being thought of poorly it ends up him in situations that are so terrible because he did that to begin with, you know, like he, yeah, he's like, he's like lighting the fuse to his own demise over and over and over again. You're just like, God, if this guy just stayed in bed, he he would be fine. Yeah. He sort of lights the dynamite and then sticks it in his back pocket thinking I'm going to need this later. Yeah. Did I light uh, that? Did I forget? The backstory to the cabbie thing, by the way, because you asked is, um, earlier, a lot earlier, but I wanted to tell it, uh, is, uh, (laughs) I get Uber drivers often who share things with me that are really strange and, and also other types of people. And so that, uh, or that cab driver was based on, uh, I was over at my then girlfriend's apartment and, um, now fiance and, uh, her, there was something wrong with her toilet. It was like three days before Christmas. We could find one plumber who was available on short notice at that time of year to come over he comes over, he spends about 20 minutes doing something that seems to involve taking the entire toilet apart and just cursing up a storm. He comes out to write up the invoice and just casually talking, he mentions how he has two daughters and he loves them and his wife won't let him see them, but he loves them. He's a great dad. He just can't see his, his girls. And uh, he says, <laughs> you know, he's changed a lot over the years. When he was young, he had a real bad temper and uh, one time he killed a kid. And my okay. girlfriend and I looked at each other and we were like, okay, you know, you run to the door. I'll run to the balcony. You know. uh, uh, have 911 ready uh, on speed. Yeah. <laughs> and he, he goes, uh, you know, I, uh, I was at this bar and this kid made me real angry. So I slammed him against the bar and uh, my buddies were on the police force and they told me you got to get out of town. The kid's dead. And then he must have looked up and like seen our faces. And he said, but the story's got a happy ending because uh, the kid uh his, his, his heart stopped on the operating table, but they got it started again. And I don't do that kind of thing no more. And we were like, oh, huh. happy, happy holidays. To, to, Great to ending. Really, Mary, sa- really yes. saved it in the end. There. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other, uh, uh, the other Five stars. aspect that we wove into the, uh, the cab driver was um, on a separate occasion. My fiance was in an, an Uber on the way to the airport and after not speaking to her driver the entire time, he looked in the rearview mirror and said to her, 
you know, for it to be first degree murder, I'd have to have intent. <laughs> oh my God. That's, that's frightening. <laughs> and, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so we just kind of wove those together into one character for this, this taxi driver. Um, and then I remembered that when I was in college, once uh, some cab driver drove me to the airport and he mentioned, you know, if you need any bikes or anything, just uh, hit me up. Here's my card. And I was 18. I didn't even know what bikes were until I got halfway through security. I was like, oh, (laughs) okay. And my first reaction, kind of like Harold, because I was an insecure teenager, was, well, he must have thought I was really cool. (laughs) Very cool. You know, he was offering to sell me drugs. Nobody's ever offered to sell me drugs. Um, So that kind of all wove together. And we did that a lot in a novel where we would take real people or real events that that had happened to us and we would either fictionalize them a little bit or just drop them in exactly how they happened into the book. And that's a lot of the uh, texture and color. I think that comes through in the travelogue portions of the novel that these are not by and large people that we've made up that represent two kind of sheltered white guys from the Bay area's idea of what middle America are like. These are, random encounters that we've actually had that we've just sort of observed and remembered kind of as reporters and then found a way to weave into this fictionalized uh space yeah we really wanted to capture the um you know the the profound weirdness of america as yeah. we saw it and so a yeah. lot of that comes from these little anecdotes here and there that we've and we talked about this a little bit before um you guys put a lot of these anecdotes into this book years and years of anecdotes Mm-hmm. And now you got to write another book. Yeah. And are you out of them? And now are you worried about that? <laughs> Not out completely. I think we were actually just writing last week, and um, I think Michael put in something uh, that a, an old professor of, of ours uh, said to him once. Um, but it is sort of. I think it's David Crosby who says has said something like, um, "You know, you have your uh, when you're writing your first album, you have your whole life up to that point to write it." And then your next album, you have to write in like a year. Yeah, <laughs> hope that yeah. year is full of inspiration. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think I think the next book, um, you know, just uh, to peel back the curtain a little bit, um, it it might have fewer of those anecdotes in them, but it will. But I think it'll be a lot more um, heavily plotted because I think I think a lot of the lessons that we learned about uh, telling a story on the scale of a novel um, while we were writing the first book, I think we're now applying to the sequel. Um, yeah, when we were starting to come up with the first book, I remember when we were first discussing that, my big concern was, how are we going to do something that sustains people's interest for the length of a book? Because we've only written short humor pieces. And so, you know, we don't want to write, if we want to write a novel and not just like a big collection of short to medium length pieces, what are we going to do that's actually going to sustain a plot that's sort of a strong enough backbone to do that and um i i remembered this character and i thought he would work because he's a reporter and stuff like that and um i forget where i'm going 
with this exactly, but but <laughs> I thought you said I thought you forgot where you were going, like physically walking somewhere right now. Oh, what room uh, am I in? No, I did actually have to go in. Am I in the I laundry room? <laughs> and then I I live next door to someone who's uh, yelled at me a few times for playing Sergeant Pepper too loudly, so I had to go inside because she just went outside and she can see me. And she glared at me, and it, I, I'm not that confrontational. How dare you so exist I, I, in your own yeah. home? Yeah, <laughs> too much Sergeant Pepper. She knocked on my door while Mr. Kite was being for the benefit of Mr. Kite was playing very loudly. And she said, would you mind turning down your jams? It's 10 o'clock on a Sunday (laughs) night. And I, I did, but I, you know, uncomfortable. I should say Uh, about the point you were making. um, Oh, no, I forgot where I was going to (laughs) go. I think we were talking about character. Um, oh yeah, but oh, the, I, the first yeah. book when we were plotting the first book, you know, we had only been doing these short pieces, and so I, the way we sort of came up with the original structure of the plot was um, that we would have like a bunch of manageable sized different episodes, not just because that's sort of a, a nice breezy structure for a humor book, but also because that's a way if you've only written short things to kind of. Uh, pare it down to to manageable chunks and then the character is the constant thread but i think this time because we've already got the experience of writing for this character and we've developed him and his wife and his world more we wanted to make it more plot driven and even though there will still be different episodes in it it doesn't have to be so much like a um like a sitcom where each chapter is sort of a different episode. And then at the end of the episode, everything is, you know, back to status quo. Lucy snuck into the show and Ricky caught her and she came back home and, (laughs) you know, the merch has found the money under the couch and everything's good. I I should, I I remember what I was going to say now too. Um, Another thing I think we realized pretty early on while we were brainstorming the book is that, um, you know, because we started writing it uh, maybe a month or two after the 2016 election. So a lot of that uh, campaign was, uh, you know, still pretty fresh in our minds. We realized that, you know, a campaign cycle already kind of has a, a built in, you know, natural narrative arc to it. And so if, you know, we realized, you know, we're writing a book about the 2016 election, um, you know, we could just use that as the sort of basic frame for the book. And, and just sort of hang our little stories from it, you know, like a mobile or something. Um, and now that, you know, the next book won't take place during an election, it'll take place, you know, during the Trump presidency. So there's, yeah. there's not that sort of natural built-in story to it already. So it, it, we're sort of filling in some of that ourselves and, and building in the through lines that came naturally to the first book. And also since then, we've uh, we have now both read Anna Karenina. And so I think we kind of want to do something on that scale. Yeah. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds easily marketable. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so um, what quick lessons have you learned from tackling such a big um, thing fresh out of the gate for your first book, writing a novel, and you're writing the second novel? What are like uh, your top three uh, things that you've learned that you can apply to the, to the next book? Mm. You know, like what about... Mm. Uh, character development, writing dialogue, story arcs, planning ahead for the entire, like uh, maintaining momentum. Like, what have you learned from this book that for the next book you're ready to go with? Like, big, like, what, what big lessons have you learned from this book, and what lessons can you tell to um, 
hopeful potential authors out there listening who want to write a novel? Like, what did you learn and what advice can you give? Uh, so I, I think the the thing that jumps to my mind is, um, you know, something that I think I had a lesson I had to learn a few times through the course of writing this book and, and revising it is um, not to be too precious with your own writing. Um, that I think, you know, there's sort of a, I think a lot of writers sort of have this tendency to like, oh, I could just be like, Kerouac and just like <laughs> drop a bunch of amphetamines and and write the whole book and that'll be done, you know. <laughs> and, but you know, in reality, uh, you know, it's a very long process. And if you want, um, you know, and and you know, there's uh, don't be too attached to the words that you wrote the first time around or even the second time around, third, you know, etc. Just there's always, you know, you can always sort of. Uh, go back and unpack things and and put them back together again and um, and there, you can always maybe find a funnier line or a more elegant way of saying something. Yeah, that's a great one that I echo. Uh, building on that in a way, I at first when we were outlining the book was really into trying to sort of come up with what details I thought would be funny and even lines of dialogue for a for a situation that I thought would be funny. And those were not, they were kind of helpful in the brainstorming process to give me, and I'm not sure if Andy was better about this than me, but, but maybe Andy, you felt this way too, but I felt they helped during brainstorming to give me some, some sense, a few more, you know, micro markers of, of what kind of a scene this would be, but not to be attached to that at all when we actually came to write. And I found that the value of outlining and brainstorming was much more at just the very macro level to say, what kind of map is this? And then a lot of the funniest lines and details were really things that didn't come to me or come to Andy, I think, until we were actually just in the moment of writing and not thinking about any, you know, grand design or not, or not deliberately plotting, okay, this shall be funny, that shall be funny. And, sort of more creating moments where you can write without thinking about the fact that you're writing. Yeah, I think and I I'd liken it kind of to like jazz improvisation. A good jazz tune to improvise on is one that just has a good chord structure and a good head. And then you you take it from there when you're in the moment. And I tried to approach the second book more like that because it's what I was most proud of during the first book as opposed to say writing like a Brian Wilson style pop song where you've got, you know, 20 chord changes and 10 voices arranged for, you know, six part harmonies and this kind of right. stuff. <laughs> yeah. I, I think something I realized too, um, building on that is that, uh, you know, we would come up with all of these very sp specific details in the outlining process and then realize by the time that we got to that point and in, in the actual writing of it, that it no longer really fit that, um, I was sort of surprised yeah. by how much, the little, you know, little lines of dialogue and little um, details here and there um, can, you know, sort of collectively uh, steer the story in another direction. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's really uh, sort of over, over, yeah, overburdening an outline with details can kind of, um, it's not a problem, but it's just, it becomes like, well, this, this no longer really works yeah. with, what, with, you know, where we are now. 
And you guys worked uh, remotely together using like Google Docs and things like that. Using Google Docs parentheses trademark close parentheses. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If, if uh, Google would like to hire us for commercials, we've <laughs> talked about how we really cannot stress enough how much we love Google Docs. I don't think uh, our writing. I don't think we would be able to do what we did without it. Um, you know, because Michael no. lives in D.C., I live in New York, so we you know schedule times to to sit down and 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 write together, and we can use you know the the really helpful chat window that Google Docs yeah. has to sort of, you know, discuss things uh, while we were writing. Um, but we also used it when we lived in the same town in Providence because it was just, it lent itself, I think, to that weird combination of solitariness of writing and collaborativeness of doing comedy writing with a team. And I don't think we'd come up with a lot of this stuff if we sat in the same room and like took it in turns to type on the keyboard while the other person suggested things. No, I mean, it, you know, to your jazz metaphor, it, it is very, it, um, like the, the improvisational aspect of yeah. how we write and, and sort of, you know, yes, and each other and build off of each other yeah. that, um, that we couldn't do if one, if only one of us had control of the keyboard at once. I yeah. Think. No, no. Yeah. And you get that reaction. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, I think a lot of times writing is such a solitary thing. People do it alone in in their house on a computer, mm. and 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 you don't have that immediate gratification that you get from doing something on stage or doing live comedy. Yeah. So you don't know when a joke lands perfectly mm-hmm. until maybe it's no. too late. Like you've written a book, and then you're like, oh, that it wasn't as funny as I thought it was. But it, maybe it would have been funny if you had ri- changed the line just a little bit, and yeah. You know, your co-author could have seen it in mm-hmm. in the Google. I'm like, oh, you know that that's a great line. But this, if you just change that one word, now now it's really funny. Yeah, there's a built-in yeah. sounding board. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I I've wondered sometimes how many revisions do we you know avoid because we catch things in real time because there are two people looking at it and we'll be writing something and and all the line and Andy will change a couple of keywords or vice versa and I'll be like. Oh yeah, okay, now that works. Whereas otherwise that joke might have sort of languished through three or four revisions before somebody finally said, This is the reason this sequence isn't working, like this wording is just not funny. Yeah. Or or what have you. And and also Marty playing to your point about having an audience. Um, some of the most gratifying stuff when we're writing the first draft is when either of us uh comes up with a line that makes the other person laugh in real time while we're coming up with it and that's this kind of more performative aspect to writing that definitely isn't there if you're doing something solitary and i think that's a big reason why we've always worked in real time a lot of people have at i sound like trump two people have asked me do you write always at the same time or do you like divide it up and oh you'll write this section i'll write that section and we always write in real time it's good. So you can like you can like see the cursor moving in the other yeah. person's window. That's yeah. exciting. Yeah. I can't stress this enough. It's a lot like how Lennon and McCartney wrote songs. <laughs> or as uh, your favorite people, um, Simon and Garfunkel. Simon and Garfunkel. Oh, who, oh that's well, different because who are Gar- omnipresent in all of your writing. Yeah. <laughs> you have such a thing about uh, specifically Art Garfunkel. Yeah. He's in many of your articles. Yeah, and and is a character, a recurring character um, in, in this book too. Uh, yeah. And he's yeah. been dedicated. You book, you dedicated the book to him. Yeah, well, the book it, is dedicated. Yeah, so we um, we started writing what we what we eventually started calling the Garfunkel monologues um, in the in the Brabble days, when, back when we were writing that website. Um, and it's a character that we just sort of uh, 
you know, it started as just a one-off piece and then it, we just kept writing from because we just thought it was so funny. And, you know, you speak, you, you talked earlier at the beginning of the episode about uh, how, you know, you keep finding these similar themes. Garfunkel, I think really, uh, those Garfunkel pieces, I think really capture a lot of the themes that we gravitate towards of, you know, the kind of um, vacuous nature of celebrity and that kind of thing. Um, and so we, uh, when we came to writing the novel, we're like, well, we have to put them in there. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it would be, a, you know, a, a shame, a shame not to, especially if this ends up being the only book we write. You know? And he gets, you know, it's funny because you're making fun of him um, for not being the famous one, obviously, in the duo. But then the amount of screen time he gets in this book, you've made him more of a famous version of himself <laughs> In this book. Yeah. Like, you've made him more politically relevant yeah. in this book than he is in real life. Yeah, the character is, uh, he's, the, the character, we sort of, his role in the book we sort of based off of um, Susan Sarandon, you know, mm-hmm. during the 2016 election. She yeah. was the sort of celebrity campaign surrogate for Bernie Sanders. Yeah. And we just thought that was so, it, it's something that only Democrats do, partly because there aren't a lot of Republican celebrities. Yeah, but the Republicans get like Clint Eastwood talking to a chick. Right, like exactly. that's all they get. You yeah. know, or like Chuck Norris. Right. You know, and it's like yeah. Scott Bayo. Just like, embarrassing people. They get uh, yeah. Kid Rock. <laughs> yeah. like, they get ridiculous people. They have people. the worst <laughs> celebrities. Uh, but like, the, I think the Democrats, for their part, uh, over rely on the power of celebrity. Yeah. And it's like, why? Like, I don't. Why am I why listening am I to this person? This person because you know yeah. Tom fucking Cruise told me to vote for him, right? Uh, <laughs> but George Clooney is really dreamy, so obviously yeah. I would do want to listen to right. him. Well, has Alec to Baldwin, he's a he's an American treasure. Absolutely, so, you know. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, but yeah, so our our Garfunkel kind of plays that role of being a um, a campaign celebrated campaign surrogate and appearing on MSNBC and yeah. CNN and that kind of thing. And, Which now I want to see. I want him to be. I want him to be like a pundit. Oh, that would be great. Great. Uh, We're joined love, here with. As uh, I understand he's not busy writing songs so I would think <laughs> joined here with chris hayes and art garfunkel yeah we're here to we talk also, about political strategy as long as we're mentioning celebrities i do want to point out that chris hayes also makes an appearance in the novel as the uh, ex-boyfriend of the uh female hero the heroine mm-hmm. as you would say um and uh, he'll come back in the sequel as well and and our take on chris hayes is, is pretty much this guy fucks <laughs> <laughs> yeah he seems kind of like yeah and harold is very jealous very yeah, jealous. very jealous of chris hayes chris hayes kind of represents a lot of what harold wants he has you know his own program he's a celebrity he's obviously well off he has a full head of hair uh he seems more comfortable in his own skin and and chris hayes is kind of like the counterpoint to who harold actually is and um it, it, I mentioned him as an example of how we sort of bring in real people and then just sort of fictionalize them with abandon to suit the needs of the world that we created. Yeah, I would say that Chris uh, Chris Hayes is the real life Chris Hayes is a much is a much better reporter than our version of Chris Hayes because yeah. I yeah. think we we used Chris Hayes also as a way to satirize a lot of the shortcomings that we see in cable news mm-hmm. and sort of chasing yeah. um, this kind of. Uh, business of um, chasing memes and chasing hashtags instead of chasing stories. Yeah. Um, and so I, I don't think the real life Chris Hayes really does that. He is on Twitter a lot though. 
Uh, maybe you should put down the phone, Chris. But uh. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, you're not wrong. They, it's everything is is a over sensationalized hashtag story. These oh days. yeah. So, I mean, it's not yeah. incorrect at all. Your criticisms are spot on, well, as I'm... they are the entire time in this book. <laughs> Thank you. As a impartial observer, um, the next book. Do you have a title for the next book? Not yet. Ooh. Uh, I, I think I. We don't have a title. I would very much like to call it the Carlisles, in keeping with the kind of Anna Karenina thing. That's the name of Harold yeah. and Patty. That's yeah. you know, and it's going to be more about them, and it's going to be more about their world. So even if that's not the title, I think it'll be something more like that. I like it. Mm-hmm. Looking forward to that. Thank you. Um, or Anna Karenina <laughs> two. <laughs> The it's reboot. Anna Kareninas. Yeah. <laughs> Anna Kareninas. The Carlisle. Um, that's awesome. I'm so excited. I want everyone to read this book. I've read this book, obviously, from the campaign trail or thereabouts. Available now on Amazon and anywhere you buy books on the internet. Also at weeklyhumorousshop.com. Um, you can follow um, these two together on one duo Twitter account. Yeah, it's like Laurel and Hardy. Yeah, yeah. it's Bleicher yeah. underscore Newton. So B L E I C H E R. And you can go to from the is it campaigntrailbook.com? Yeah, campaigntrailbook.com. Go to campaigntrailbook.com. Go to humoristbooks.com for more information on upcoming releases and more information on where to buy oh, the book. I should point out too, uh, if you're um, looking for something to read in your book club. Uh, Michael and I have personally written a book club packet available to download for free from campaign book, uh, campaigntrailbook.com. And so. we will Skype into your book club. Oh, yeah. We have very little to do. Uh, we yeah. <laughs> and, and uh, low standards. We're so, very like, approachable. Yeah. three people. Yeah, we will we will Skype in and have and have a discussion with you about our book. We would absolutely. And if love it's that. in the New York City area, Andy will just come to your book club with oh, yeah. a yeah. bottle of wine yeah. uh-huh. and like you know let's let's open this bottle. Mm-hmm. Let's open up a a riesling and chat about some politics. I have uh, a you know. I have a monthly um, monthly metro pass. I can you know. <laughs> Anywhere, no limit to go the, anywhere in the five boroughs, <laughs> Andy Newton will come to your book club and talk about this book. For sure. That's a promise. <laughs> I cannot wait. Um, well, thanks for being on. This is so much fun. Yeah. Thanks for this being on Talkward. Um, our almost sponsor, like being in your living room. Our sponsor today is Cartoon Collections for licensing uh, cartoons, buying mugs, t-shirts, and all kinds of things. Cartoons from The New Yorker, from Esquire, Wall Street Journal, Barron's, and many others, including Weekly Humorist. Go to Cartoon Collections dot com today thank you for our, our sponsor don't you love the cartoon collections people they're amazing amazing i love the cartoon collection i actually uh uh i'm a my day job is a textbook editor yeah and i worked on a history textbook and used i think what was the precursor to the cartoon collections mm-hmm. back when cartoon Bob, stock con- cartoon stock i've i've used i used them as a textbook editor yeah to license cartoons for one of our history books because they have all the cartoons they have every cartoon uh they have all the top cartoonists and you can uh, they have a gigantic ridiculous database so if you need a cartoon for anything specific you can check them oh, yeah. out if you're looking to uh for instance um looking for some political cartoons on the bill clinton impeachment uh, which is what yeah. I was doing. Lots of options. Lots of them. Yeah, so pretty, many. Pretty <laughs> hilarious cartoons too. So it's amazing how um, things have changed. Like the things that used to outrage us mm-hmm. have changed so dramatically. Oh yeah, uh, from the Trump to the Obama, from the George W. Bush to the Clinton. Like the amount of outrage that 
you know, like Obama got from that like tan suit. Oh my god! Right? Yeah. Or... Well, I was going to say the standards actually got higher under Obama because, like, in the Clinton era, we had to have a debate about whether or not you know getting a blowjob in the Oval Office was inappropriate. And right. In Obama's administration, I remember an article where someone from the Bu- the second Bush administration was saying. It's outrageous that Obama sometimes doesn't wear his suit jacket in the Oval Office. <laughs> <laughs> if you can't do that, you're not ready to be president. Horrible. <laughs> Ridiculous. Full stop. Full yeah. stop. wonder how they would feel about, you know, eating a Big Mac in the Oval Office. Who knows? <laughs> Just masturbating onto Hope Hicks. <laughs> and with that... <laughs> Michael Bleicher, Andy Newton... <laughs> From the campaign trail or thereabouts, please get it today. Thanks for listening. I'm Marty Dundix, editor-in-chief of Weekly Humors. Please follow us online at Weekly Humors and subscribe to the newsletter at weeklyhumorous.com. This has been Talkward. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye. Bye, Bye guys. Bye. Bye. That was fun. Thanks yeah. for doing that. That was, that was fun. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Talk Word. Please subscribe, follow us, and visit weeklyhumorist.com. 